episode is sponsored by Squirrel Sisters. Squirrel Sisters is a health and wellness company founded by sisters Gracie and Sophie Tyrrell, who are on a mission to help you treat your health. As we all know, I love my food, but one thing I tend to struggle with is the balance between being healthy and indulging in quote-unquote snacks. I like to keep my sugar consumption reasonably low without restricting myself on tasty treats and that's where Squirrel Sisters come in. They have a range of healthy snacks, bars and nibbles that can be found in stores across the nation including Waitrose, Holland & Barrett, Selfridges and online on Amazon. All their products are 100% natural, vegan, gluten-free and made with the highest quality ingredients and most importantly, do not have any added sugars. It's a win-win for all. My personal favourite is the Cacao Orange Energy Bars which taste just like a Terry's Chocolate Orange but without all the bad stuff. Follow the brand on Instagram at Squirrel Sisters. And now for the episode... Welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm Hannah Harley-Young, a photographer by trade and a foodie at heart. Each week, I sit down and chat all things food with well-known foodies, industry insiders, chefs and people who just love their food. Today, I'm joined by Ching Hee Huang, the TV chef and cookery author who is essentially our ambassador of Chinese cooking. Born in Taiwan and raised in South Africa and the UK, She bridges the gap between the true essence of Chinese cooking and culture and brings it into our homes in an easy, friendly and exciting way. You may know her as the lady who fronts well-known food shows Ching's Kitchen, Chinese Food Made Easy and Chinese Food in Minutes, to name but a few, as well as guest appearances on Saturday Kitchen, Sunday Brunch and This Morning. Her shows and books have been broadcast and published globally, and in America, she was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Culinary Host. As if this wasn't enough, she has written nine books and has a walk range out called Lotus Walk. She really is the definition of a foodie entrepreneur. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ching. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. (laughs) This is so exciting. It's also nice to interact with people that I have not seen in a very long time. Um, I just want to just give a quick um, comment that we are obviously going through the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and we are recording remotely. So please do bear with us if there's any audio or technical issues. And we're not breaking any rules. And we're not breaking any rules. We're very far from each other. So I always start my interviews with asking what you had for breakfast today. Oh, for, I actually haven't had any yet. <gasps> so I know, and breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But um, I'm actually fasting at the moment. So um, I plan to break my fast with the most delicious sort of green smoothie with lots of fruits and um I'm really into my healthy eating at the moment because actually I put on too much COVID weight. (laughs) Haven't we all? Haven't we all, (laughs) Jane? I'm trying to reset a little bit. Um, And so, yeah, I'm doing the, my husband is really into health. And um, so he's got me doing this 16 hour fast. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. And actually, you know, you realize the more healthier you are, you just don't want to put any stuff into the body. And I don't want to eat until I'm really hungry for it. You know, my husband is a massive advocate for the intermittent fasting as well. Mm -hmm. And last year, I tried it out. And actually, I think, especially if you sort of because I sometimes suffer from a few stomach issues, and it Mm -hmm. really gives you that break to kind Mm -hmm. of just not put anything in the body, you can obviously drink water and tea and things like that. But just Mm -hmm. to kind of cleanse Mm -hmm. on a daily basis, I think it's Mm -hmm. really good. And I felt amazing. And actually, I, I don't know if you feel like this, but I, I felt like I had a bit more energy. Yeah, I do too. And yeah. I feel like in the summertime, it's definitely a good time to do it. And how have you been getting on during COVID? What have you been eating and cooking? Have you been, <laughs> I mean, I've been, I've been having the most awful cravings. I suddenly have the worst sugar addiction I've ever had in my life I don't know what's going on it might be boredom or anxiety I don't know (laughs) I've been on a roller coaster as well it's been absolutely mad and that's why I'm fasting (laughs) it was like whoa you know comfort eating at the beginning lots of um fried rice um 
lots and lots of rice that I could get hold of. And then when they started to run out of rice in the supermarkets, I really panicked because I think really it speaks to the Chinese genes, you know, um, that, uh, yeah, and that rice is the most important grain of all time. And uh, I think, yeah, I think my body didn't uh, do well with that notion that we might run out. But I want to take it back a little bit. You were born in Taiwan, uh, China, and you grew up in South Africa before moving to the UK. What was it like growing up in all of these cultures as, as a child and, and young adult? For me, uh, I, I grew up with my family, uh, my maternal grandparents in southern Taiwan until I was five. I was born in Taipei, but my parents worked in the city. And it's very traditional to have uh, the young kids to be with uh, the grandparents. And so essentially, I mean, both my grandparents are farmers. So uh, we had an orangery and a bamboo farm on uh, my maternal grandparents' side. On my paternal side, we had a rice paddy fields. So for me, it was it, sometimes we'd flop between the two grandparents, but majority of the time my brother and I spent uh, was on the farm in, uh, you know, on my bamboo and orangery farm on my uh, maternal grandparents' side. And it was wonderful, you know. Um, we have a big family. Every mealtime was a celebration. Uh, all the great aunts, I mean, we've got a big, big extended family. So my grandfather is uh, one of 11. So we all lived in a Yuan, which is this courtyard home. If you can imagine lots of different homes uh, in a sort of U shape, and then each home having their own plot and vegetable patches um, off the back of that. And then with a central courtyard where we'd all come together and eat uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and all the uh, different households. You know, my my uh, great aunt. You know, she'd bring you know, whatever she had, or she was making bows. And but my grandmother was the 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 matriarch, if you like. She was the head of the family because my grandfather's the eldest of eleven, so he was very much the the figurehead. And um, you know, uh, obviously he worked uh, on the farm during the day. He would go and trade. He would take our oranges, go to the, the markets and bring back different produce. It was all about food. It You know, from day one, it was all about what could we grow on the land? How do we sustain ourselves? What's in season? What are we eating now? How do we get the most out of this? And how do we get that? And so it, um, it, it was wonderful. And so I grew up watching my grandmother cook a uh, majority of the meals, uh, you know, 365 days a year. You know, she'd always be on her, her huge wood-fired stove. You know, she had two of them and the, the woks were like this big. They were gigantic. Um, and, and huge bamboo steamers um, that, that actually the lids would use to dry things like um, soybeans in the sun um, or, or other beans or bamboo to get dried bamboo or dried um, orange peel because we didn't waste those. They could be used for um, uh, drinks and, you know, medicine. So it was everything was was used. Nothing was wasted. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we they had obviously animals as well, but things like chicken, chickens running around they were just everywhere <laughs> I feel like I've just been taken into paradise it sounds absolutely <laughs> idyllic and so this this sense of all of the houses sort of in this u-shape so was every meal kind of like a huge sort of community feel it was like all the family together sitting down enjoying food made by the the, the mothers the fathers the the children it was like a commune. Yeah, <laughs> a family exactly, commune. a commune. Um, that it's great because it's so supportive and everyone just mucks in and it was so fun. And every mealtime was an occasion. It was like a feast. It was like a real party, you know, and lots of drama. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Southern Taiwanese is always drama, kind of like the Sicilians in Italy, you know. And so what would you be eating at some of these meals? Like just even just like a standard day, what, what, would, a, what would your meals be? 
So really, they were quite frugal, to be honest. Um, for breakfast, it was rice gruel, like congee. So um, it's usually left over. The rice left over from the night before uh, would be used to um, make this sort of soupy rice, rice porridge. Um, and we would have things like uh, uh, salted peanuts, um, different bamboo in chili oil, pickle. Mm. Um, we would have uh, maybe some pickled cucumbers that my grandmother's got in her large urn, um, various different kinds of pickles, because that was a way of preserving what we had. Uh, and there was no refrigeration back then. So you had to be extremely careful and things spoiled really quickly. So either they were dried or either they were steeped in vinegar or wine to keep um, to keep. And so um, sometimes the occasional eggs from the chickens, but that was very occasional. Um, so uh, preserved eggs as well. My grandmother made, made salted um, eggs, which are basically hay mixed with salt to make um, a, a covering. And then, um, and, and basically you just place the fresh egg in and then just let it ferment for about a good two, three months until the flavors really um, come come through. So lots of uh, different, and oh, salted dried fish, uh, mm. salted dried shrimp, you know, um, very little of everything. And fermented bean curd, absolutely. I mean, you're gonna think this is, you know, madness, but if you think of like tempeh, which is very popular now, or miso, if you think of a, a just a, a chunkier, thicker miso block, that mm -hmm. we would just take a little bit and just to salt the um, rice porridge. So it was it was very uh, minimal ingredients like that. And lunch, again, it would be mostly like a fried rice with some vegetables from the garden, um, maybe some spinach, a little bit of garlic, ginger, stir fried with a little bit of soy sauce, just very, very plain. Um, and then the dinner, for, for dinner, that was when, you know, uh, or my grandmother and the great aunts would make a little bit more effort. So, um, and we would share everything. So maybe there would be one fish and, you know, us being the kids that were actually the adults ate first because, you know, it was of like, course. <laughs> and, you know, us kids would be there, you know, trying to get all the other little bits of the fish. And um, so, yeah, either, you know, big fish, either river carp, which is very um, popular. And in Baihan, in the village where we're from, we've got lots of beautiful little um, rivers and streams. And so what was very popular is local river shrimp um, that my grandfather would get from the market and and trade so you know things like um the meats and the fish were very occasional and they were definitely um you're talking two or three times a, a month if you like they weren't everyday foods these foods were um were celebrated, you know, and um, it was like, wow, okay, we look forward to a whole chicken or some pork um, mm. or some pork, pork bones that we would then have with the bamboo shoot as a soup. So everything was little, little, but lots of little dishes that everyone shared and everyone brought what they had to the table as well. So um, that was... I'm that absolutely was salivating. <laughs> I don't even know what to say right now. I've gone so off track. I'm literally like, I need to cut this short and just go downstairs and make something to eat. You were, I mean, the way that you were cooking and sort of, I guess, with a lot of Eastern cuisine and obviously, you know, speaking predominantly about Chinese food, you were quite ahead of your time with this whole fermenting thing and this whole like pickling. You know, this is so popular now. People love anything that's fermented, whether it be, you know, the, the Japanese kimchi or sauerkraut, or, you know, and which is very, very good for you as well. Mm -hmm. So you guys had an incredibly healthy eating pattern. Mm. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's these traditions, these age old traditions have always been there. And I think um, it's, it, it, we've just forgotten them um, because mm. of the modernity of life and, you know, the way things are going. And we, we, we are less connected. We have more food than ever. Well, in the West, we, we are very lucky and, you know, in parts of the East. But, you know, we, we have, there is an abundance of food in the sense that we have, there is so much waste as well yeah. from it. Whereas in the past, 
everyone produced their own food and so they only had what they had and so everyone was much more mindful about food and had certainly a much more relate uh, direct relationship with food of course because you when you grow your own food you know it's very immediate i think that relationship will become more and more um pronounced and more and more important and more revered and more appreciated more than ever because um i think this pandemic too because you know people are uh you know when people are panic buying in the supermarkets the one thing you realize is that actually nothing is important it's just food food is the most important thing people are wasting less people are cooking more and actually you know when you cook more you have this deeper understanding and respect for food the more you cook so i was just about to say i actually think that you know obviously we're going through an incredibly challenging and you know unprecedented time but with regards to our relationship to food now mm-hmm. i think there's been a massive u- well i hope there will be a massive u turn in terms of how much we consume and how much we buy that we don't need yeah even i sometimes have been guilty in the past of sort of you know being in the supermarket and just buying things that i don't really need and i'm not really mm-hmm. going to use and then mm-hmm. in this time not that i've ever panic bought because i know how to cook and i know how to use certain ingredients but i did find things in the cupboard and i was like gosh actually you know what i've got inspired let's go and make i don't know whatever it is you know i've made <laughs> some bizarre things but they've kind of worked out and that's what you do you just sort of muck in and and you be careful and we need to be careful yeah absolutely absolutely you you hit the nail on the head in fact it's great um opportunity you know to be creative in the kitchen right and um and you've you know found lots of pleasure in mixing and fusing different things and you know finding your own style of cooking so that's that's fantastic you know and i mean I, there's been some absolutely bizarre dishes being put out on the table but you know <laughs> no one's judging right now <laughs> as long as it tastes good that's exactly fine. who cares you were in china until you were 5 Is that correct? Is that what you said? I was in Taiwan until I was 5. Yeah. And um yeah, so uh from then my family, my father uh, met a South African businessman and he said, "Well, you know, we need bicycles in uh South Africa." And you know, everything at that time was made everything was made in Taiwan. You know, everything, literally everything. And so um It, you know uh he was asked um to go into this export business um with this South African businessman and he said fine um sure let's do it let's bring these amazing bicycles to South Africa before we knew it you know i went from my brother and i went from one farm my grandparents farm to uncle robert's farm and he had a lovely house in south africa and he had an extended house that we just stayed with him and they my they tried to figure it out and make a life for themselves and because of course you know that time my father was the only one that went out of seven children to go to university because everyone saved so he could go to university and he um was determined to be a businessman whatever that meant you know and so he wanted to create a life for for us and so you know that was an an experience and a journey um and the farm was was wonderful it was it was different uh, there wasn't much grown on the farm um but in terms of uh the foods they were eating you know like millis pup um what's that uh, millis pup is a grain it's a very small grain it's kind of like couscous it's mixed with water and it it's uh then becomes a, like a different like a south african style of congee if you like oh wow yeah and and so it's really delicious is it a bit like is it a bit like a polenta like polenta exactly right like polenta. okay yeah but sometimes it's mixed with um with corn with millet uh depending on what you have so i think that's just a generic term for it and um and yeah so we would have that with biltong we'd have um buddhavors we would have brais uh, these are all very dutch and um, buddhavors are are uh, south african sausages biltong the dried beef jerky Uh so food be- was completely different. Local African food was also very different. Um you know they would eat crickets and dried locusts and lots of insects. 
And so, <laughs> so yeah, that was. No one that can was... see that my eyebrows have raised very <laughs> high. <laughs> and um, they they were they were interesting. But perhaps the most interesting thing was that I remember the first day we got into the farm, and Auntie Susan said, "Here, have these." And these were little plastic pots. And, you know, my brother and I were curious, so we sat outside in her garden and eating them. My mum came up and said, what are you eating? I said, well, we don't know. I mean, lovely Auntie Susan <laughs> gave this to us. And we were speaking Chinese, obviously, because we didn't know a word of English yeah. at the time. My mum took a bite, like a, and she was like, oh. And so she started dramatically trying to convey you know what she meant with auntie susan but in a sense my mother was like it's gone off it's sour but what it was was yogurt oh my gosh up until then we'd never had yogurt in our entire life because it's not something that we ate in taiwan tofu yes fermented bean curd yes soured milk no <laughs> so incredibly interesting so, so I guess actually growing up when you were in Taiwan, there was not really any dairy. No, it was one that piece of our meal, you know, that was missing. We didn't have cows. We didn't milk, you know, the cows. I mean, my other grandmother had a goat that she'd occasionally milk, but it was fresh goat milk. You know, it wasn't, nothing was fermented. It just wasn't the culture. So just interestingly, do you eat much dairy nowadays? So now, actually, to this day, I don't. Um, I grew up, obviously, in South Africa. Since then, I love yogurt and I love my milks and I love my breads and all of that. And then bringing, you know, that uh, to the UK as well. Continue to have this love affair with dairy. Have you tried um, kefir? Because that's fermented and sort of very yeah. sour. I'm trying to get into that at the moment. <laughs> that's supposed to be very very healthy and good for very you. healthy I try and put it on my granola every morning so how long were you in South Africa for uh then we were in South Africa for about five years and so that's okay. when I learned my English my broken English and then um from then on we moved to London when I was 11 because uh we by sort of 1989 we had to move because um uh, Nelson Mandela was about to be freed, apartheid was about to uh, collapse, there was a lot of social unrest and my father eventually, he actually was very successful in South Africa, you know, through this, you know, the bicycle business and all of that and, um, and made a life for us there and so we were very sad to leave South Africa but we had to, there was just mass exodus because no one knew what was the future of South Africa would be and so there was a lot of crime and riots and all of that so it was unsafe and so we moved uh, to the UK in 1989. What did you think of Chinese food when you came to the UK? Were you eating much Chinese food at this point or had you kind of sort of reverted to the western cuisine? Of course at home my parents my mum was cooking um you know, home style cooking. But I remember the first time we ventured into Chinatown and uh, we went to Wong K. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it was interesting. It was interesting <laughs> to us because, you know, as a Taiwanese, we were also out of place because it was very much Cantonese and it was like, ah, it was very kind of fiery and um, fiery kind of service and slapdash and so my father was a little bit like oh where where are we <laughs> you know can you just explain what is the difference between Cantonese and let's say Taiwanese food okay so Cantonese food is uh very much it's southern Chinese cuisine and there are some similarities but Cantonese food is um much more sort of rice based uh, because uh, rice grows predominantly in southern China, um, lots of uh, dim sum, because dim sum grew along the tea houses, along the trade routes in southern China. Um, and so dim sum chefs are known for really a wide variety of skills. So uh, from, well, not so much noodle pulling, but but definitely dim sum. Um, dim sum, and I would say um, wok fire dishes, um, and sort of saucy-based sort of uh, dishes. When we say sauce-based dishes, I think, it, I mean, like, um, uh, you know, wet, 
stir fries because there's there's many different uh, styles of stir fries. You can have a dry fry, you can have a steam fry, you can have a, a braised fry, you can have a wet fry. So um, the the different sort of levels and uh, Cantonese chefs are very well revered across China. They are one of the best, and it takes about eight years to become a proper dim sum chef. Um, and yeah. so it's a lot of skill, a lot of knowledge, uh, and. And and yeah, so it, it goes on. And they they're known for their knife skills. Um, they're known for their um, you know imagination for for being able to produce intricate things to roasting. Oh, they're very good at roasting. I mean, char siu, for example, and roast duck, um, and uh, they call it siu uh, siu, uh, which is to sal, which is to roast, roasting chefs. So, you know, all across Canton and Hong Kong, we don't really roast anything at home because they've got, we let the professionals do it. So we go to these rotisseries where they would make everything for us from roast chicken, you know, roast soy chicken and whatnot. So um, everything has, every station is is very much, um, uh, you know, a professional station cantonese kitchen is a very large kitchen and everyone has their own um uh, professional station and no one really crosses um you know if you're a wok chef you're a wok chef if you're a dim sum chef you're a dim sum chef and the dim sum chef so is that kind of regarded as a bit of an art absolutely it's an art yes it's uh, a beautiful you know skill and not everyone um can do it uh, it's a very, very intricate, very delicate work. Um, I don't have the patience for it. <laughs> I think I'm. I think I'm the same as you. I mean, I must say, you know, when you go to like a when you go to a good dim sum restaurant, there's something so beautiful as well about when it's placed on the table that you can't you can't not appreciate what's in front of you. You yeah. can tell that there has been time and dedication and love put into these beautiful little pockets of of goodness yeah and and dian xin you see uh dim sum the word uh dian xin means to touch the heart because it's so beautiful it touches your heart so that's the essence of it so that's it's really beautiful yeah very beautiful so what was the jump between you sort of now being in the uk and growing up in the uk and i assume being educated in the uk to getting into the food industry? I had um, a very tough few years in the UK. I mean, we moved in 1989. In 1990, a recession hit. My father's business, everything that he invested in this country um, was just lost. Our family were in a lot of debt. My mother had to go back to Taiwan to work, to try and, you know, send the money here to the UK. And as a result of that, I took to cooking the meals at home because my mother was away. And so um, my father's a very bad cook. He can make <laughs> rice. And that's about it. He, you know, to this day that he can just make rice. So, you know, dishes I had to take to cooking. And, um, you know, I, I, it was OK at the beginning. But actually, by the time I was 15, I started to resent cooking and being in the kitchen and, you know, having this responsibility. I just wanted to go out and have fun with my friends. Um, but it was a learning curve for me. And I'm glad that um, it, it, uh, it, it's a skill that it actually has become a career, you know, funny enough that you, you see my grandparents on their farm, um, you know, being surrounded by food and, and that was a pleasurable exchange for me because I was, you know, I was looked after by them. And then having to reciprocate and look after my father through that skill, I think through that process, you know, it, it, it's just deeply ingrained in me. I didn't realize that I would grow up to be a cook and that it would be my career. But I think it was always obvious in the most basic necessity of survival really you know to put it that way because by the time it was uh, I mean I never nearly left school at 15 Uh, luckily I had a a savior 
um, a headmistress saw me working late on a Thursday night and next in Brent Cross illegally. <laughs> and uh, and uh, she, she whisked me off to, you know, her office the next day and um, gave me, you know, she said, if you do well in your A-levels, I'll give you 90% scholarship and you can stay. And so I worked really hard and I managed to stay. And then after that, managed to go to uni. It was a time when it was still supported by the government and we didn't have fees. So that was fine. But all throughout that period, it was the toughest time. Um, And then I would go into the toughest time then as well, because, you know, I started my own food business at 21 um, when I was still in uni because things got so bad you know we had to literally I I was working and I've been working since I was 15 Um, but uh, you know I set up my food company then it was a catering company called Fuji um, and I supplied lots of little stores uh, all around London it was Cullen's They've now sold to Cullen's and Europa Foods. It was Europa Foods Group. They now sold to Tesco. It was a long time ago. And I was, you know, tried to convince the buyer, poor Tim Marland, <laughs> uh, you know, you need noodle salads. These are in, you know, Pret have sushi. You need <laughs> cool noodles. And uh, it was just basically Taiwanese noodle, like a bian but uh, plain noodles with different sauces. And you'd have to mix. And it's like Ooh, a lovely sauce. Oh, my God, you'd love it. It's perfect mm. in summer months. And it's ready to eat and it's cold. And even to start that business, you know, I had 500 pounds. I had a fax machine. You know, it was just a lot of blood, sweat and tears that, uh, that went into all of that. But that was how I got into food after I graduated from university. I love the <laughs> fact that I know, but I do. I, I love the fact that it's sort of took a couple's you know key people to sort of believe in you in a way and I I, re- I listen to a lot of people's life stories and there's and you know there's something quite um sort of deep and meaningful when someone like a teacher takes a chance on someone you know it's yeah. it must it's really beautiful you obviously you, this business begins um you you sort of have immersed yourself now into this industry and where's the next jump I guess to TV to to writing books to sort of getting to that point do you feel like it was the right place right time that maybe there wasn't as many female Chinese cooks that Mm. kind of had your background knowledge and your sort of real enthusiasm for the cuisine I'd have to say you know I wish uh there was a um I guess I don't know like a roadmap that I was always on to TV you know but it honestly it just happened by chance um I was uh oh well my my husband now husband but I was dating at the time his sister uh loved my noodle salad <laughs> she, Fiona she was like oh my god Shane these are amazing <laughs> why can't we have these in our canteen at UK TV food which then became UK food you know UK food channel and so she was working as the press officer there and um, she goes oh my god you need to sell these noodles on TV you need to meet the commissioner um and maybe you could do like a, a demo of these noodle salads. Everyone needs to know about them. And so um, I went in, I brought my noodle salads, I brought my drinks um, and I took them in. And, and then, so the fourth person that is responsible for the journey that I'm on is Gareth Williams. So he was the commissioner at the time of UK Food. And he said, yeah, I love these noodles. I love this drink. This is fabulous. Why don't you come on uh, the show and maybe maybe you could do like a screen test? And, um, and I was like, okay, sure. I didn't know what that was. And I thought, great, I'll make this noodle salad, you know, on, on screen. So I went for that screen test and I cooked the dish. But I didn't know where it would lead me because I, I thought, great, now I get to PR my noodles. And I didn't even know what PR meant. I just knew that I'd be able to bring it to a mass audience. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, pound fifty, you know, I, I make per noodle pot. Maybe I'm going to sell 100 noodle pots. <laughs> and so it was so naive. I love the naivety of it, you know, especially sort of in this day and age where there's just so much out there. 
yeah. it's really nice to hear a story that you know is based a bit on naivety because I think that's kind of what made it at the time I feel very grateful very blessed for that experience so the screen test went well and they said oh we love your noodles it was like fabulous and they were like well can you come back and actually cook on the program <laughs> and I'm like oh okay well, would you like me to cook? Shall I cook the noodle? No, 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 we want you to cook like a stir fry dish, maybe something that you have on a Friday night. Before I knew it, I was being asked to cook a, uh, I, that was it, a vegetarian dish. Um, up to me, a vegetarian dish live for Jenny Barnett. So I said, okay, sure, I'll do that. So I went and I cooked the dish and I thought, <laughs> I did think in my mind at the time, when when am I going to be able to pee on my noodles? (laughs) I love it. So I had Fuji for 10 years and there was a crossover of five years where I was building my TV career, you know, carrying on doing these stints on Great Food Live, doing my own show, writing a book, and they were few and far between, you know. I I often speak to many people now who ask me, Ching, I'd love to be a TV chef. How do I do it? Um, And I always say to them, you need to be very patient because between your your first gig and your next gig you know it was two years before I had my next tv show you know um and then between the first one and then the next one was another two years and then for the next one and another one it was on average another two or three years and the longest wait was four years so you have to just you have to be uh, patient I mean it's not a career that I would say um, can pay the bills unless you are, unless you really find your niche and you're very lucky um, and you're a zeitgeist at the right time, right moment, and you have a very strong team. It's like everything falls into place. But if you're starting out, you have to work extremely hard. You you have to take all the opportunities that you're given, no, no matter how small, you know, do everything. Because uh, it, if it's a passion and in the process of your passion, what you will find is that in the doing, uh, the doors will open because you're saying to the universe, this is me, this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. Being in the creative industry, it's not always easy, but you must find something that just pays the bills. So, you know, no matter what it is, no matter how hard it is, just think, okay. And that for me, that was my food business, you know. Like oh, so hard. They both kind of work. They sort of entwined with each other, and then you sort of you naturally, obviously, continue with with, with the TV, the broadcasting, the writing. It, I, I migrated. So in two thousand and eight, yeah. recession hit. In two thousand and nine, I said, you know, I've had enough. Ten years and varicose veins and working dogged hours. I've had enough of that industry. Closed Fuji. And then from 2009, it was the toughest decision of my life to just say, well, I'm going to be a TV chef from now on and hopefully it's going to pay. Ching, you're inspiring as well. I'm just sort of sitting here. I mean, I'm just not even interrupting because I just, everything you're saying is is all truth and, it, and it's really just, it's, it's, it's good to hear. I just want to bring it back to something that I think you've also successfully achieved is not all, but some people, I think, look at Chinese food or Eastern food in general and potentially find it a little bit intimidating at times. It could be because they're working with ingredients they're not used to. Dishes are spicy. They're too fragrant. And I think what you've successfully done is, and I, and I see this a lot, not only in your TV work, but also when I had a good old look on your, on your website, is that you've dissected the methods and allowed us to cook Chinese food at home in a really easy, approachable way. And I wanted to know if this was something that was really important for you to do as you sort of started embarking on writing your own recipes and and showing the world that you can make Chinese food. Thank you so much. I mean, that's such a lovely compliment. Um, I, I just, you know, for me... I just try to break it down. I mean, I, I'm just a student at the end of the day as well. You know, I'm, uh, I'm trying to learn a dish and then I think, well, how would I approach that dish? And let me try and make it easy. And I, I make it easy just as much for the audience as it is for myself because 
you know, I, I don't want to be there with too many ingredients and I try and cut things out as possible. And I think, well, I also like to try and make it healthier so I can actually eat this every day. But at the same time, would my grandmother, who's always in my my ear, you know, would she be proud of it? Would she look at it and think, well, that's not Chinese? Or would she look at it and think, well, actually, that's that's pretty Chinese. And I quite like that. And that's a new take on it. So so I, I have these um, uh, sort of uh, voices in my ear. And I, I try and uh, every dish that I come across, I try and put it through those you know that process uh, it's kind of like a qc quality control process you know is it asian um and and if if i do a dish and i'm like well because I, I love east asian cuisine as a whole as well and so i say well this is my take you know i'm i'm very careful to say that and i'm very careful to say this is a vietnamese style you know this is absolutely not the traditional dish this is not a classic you know i'm not there trying to appropriate you know, the word, I, I, I just love it. And I want to celebrate it. And I, I would love, you know, my audience to enjoy it. So I, I try to uh, do my due diligence, my research, you know, and, and, and try and make it the best that I, I can possibly make it. So, um, and it's very, very important for me, uh, that people enjoy the dishes and, 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 and make the food. Um, because I, I want people to be happy, you know, at the end of the day. And, um, and so that's, that's, that's the thing. We have to eat 365 days a year. My grandmother always said to me, you know, how can you be a decent human being if you don't even know how to cook and feed yourself? And that may seem harsh, but it's really true, you know. Completely. Um, and, and it's not just a pleasure. It's, 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 it's everything. I think it's, it it really touches your heart, you know, like dim sum, you know, deep down. It's it's a philosophy. What are your thoughts on Chinese food in the UK at the moment? Because I think that not everyone, again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but a lot of people can sometimes see Chinese food as like their sort of cheat meal. I'm going to go for a Chinese on a Friday night. And, you know, the Chinese food that I grew up on, which, you know, my dad used to take me to some lovely Chinese restaurants. Um, unfortunately, they've all shut down now, which is really annoying. Um, <laughs> but I, I wonder if what we're getting here, is that authentic for you? And do you think that Chinese food can be seen as healthy? I mean, I know that you achieve that very well in your cooking and your recipes, mm -hmm. but as a whole and, and what we're kind of supplied with, as a, as a nation, you know, you've got all these Chinese takeaways. Mm. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think there is a, a, a space for everything. Um, uh, what I love about Chinese cuisine is that it's so broad and so vast and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's full of all the different layers. It's even, there's even a class system. <laughs> you know, you have Imperial Beijing Gong Ting Tai, you know, uh, which is imperial banqueting kind of food that the emperors used to feast on. You have traditional Chinese food in terms of medicinal food that you have, you know, when you're unwell. You have um, festival food, you know, you have celebratory food, you have foods, certain types of foods you have on your birthday, you know, you have um, takeaway food your lovely, you know, British, American, Chinese or British Chinese or, you know, all of that um, fusion Chinese food. Uh, you've got uh, classic traditional home cooking. And then you've got all the 34 regions of China, you know, that have their own personalities. And just because of all their different uh, um, sort of uh, ingredients that they're known for and cooking styles that that becomes this great cuisine, it's inclusive on all levels, you know, and I think that is, um, to me, that, you know, that's, 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 a, that's a great, um, great cuisine. And, and, and there is a place and a space for everything. It might not be authentic to, to you. I mean, I, just to give you an example, Chefs now in China migrate everywhere. So from Sichuan, which is the Western China, which is a very spicy region, it's known for its Sichuan pepper, 
mala, this numbing heat. You know, a lot of Sichuan chefs have gone and traveled and work now in Beijing and all the different regions. And they have then adapted their cooking and their style of cooking with the local Beijingers, you know, or the local Can- Canton or in Xi'an. And so there's fusion cuisine happening within China itself because traditionally they wouldn't be traveling outside of their, their um, region. But now there's mass migration, even within the regions, you know, finding work, all these migrant workers. And so the, the, it's, it's um, fusing anyway. You know, if, if Chinese cuisine is fusing in itself in China, then I, I think there is no um, boundaries. And I've always believed in this, that actually um, as a chef, as a cook, you have to keep pushing the boundaries of your cuisine you know, push it out a little bit more. How can we, because that's how you progress. That's how you evolve. And that's what being a human is. And, you know, that's all part of the same process of development and growth. I mean, we never used to have sweet corn and all these ingredients. We never never used to have chilies. And they came in the silk route, you know, by with the Portuguese. So um, the food is one mass fusion. And it's just that we are judging it through the lens of in this very short time frame in which uh, we are in at Mm. this moment in time Mm. but if we were to look maybe 100 years you know maybe to live 100 years on in the future and to look back and say oh that was that was going on then it's you know it was fusing and actually the food we have now was because of what these guys did back then you know well, it's just it's sort of like it's cross-pollination and sort of I guess everybody also has their own take on it as well. Sort Absolutely. Of as you've mentioned. Yeah, everyone has their own take on it and that's creativity. Where are some of your favourite Chinese restaurants? My favourite Chinese restaurants. Oh, gosh. Or restaurants in general. I usually ask this question and saying, what are your favourite restaurants? But we uh, can do a bit of both. I mean, there are many in the UK, which I, I love. And I think that in the UK we have... We have still continue to have some of the best Chinese um, restaurants in Europe. I would say, you know, in London, Imperial Treasure for their Peking Duck or Mingjiang for their Peking Duck, you know, Xiaolongbao, even Shukumen do some amazing Xiaolongbao. I would say Royal China for some fantastic dim sum, just all around amazing char siu and dim sum. For the ultimate best Chinese uh, food that I've ever had, I'd have to say it's in Macau. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, uh, oh, my gosh, the chefs there are just amazing. Um, you know, you go to the eight um, in the Grand Lisboa, this big, big casino house, it's right at the top you know um it's three mission start dim sum restaurant the best you know they've got little uh char su bao in the shape of hedgehogs which have just been finely oh my gosh. they've got um basically the wheat starch wrapper that you'd have you know usually on um, a prawn dumpling in jiao in a prawn dumpling uh, shaped in a goldfish beautifully curated wow. it, each one is like a work of art you just don't want to eat it but speaking even, of dim sum being an art <laughs> <laughs> but even as you eat it you're like oh god it's so good give me another one and it's taken you know like the chef an hour just to curate the one so I mean that's when art meets food uh, in, a, in an explosive, beautiful, magical way. I but think. I think that Chinese cuisine is one of those cuisines where there is a there is a form of art, and I, and I don't think that for me anyway personally there are there is a, there are several cuisines that I think when I'm eating it, I'm not just appreciating the tastes and what's happening in my mouth, but yeah. actually what is presented to me on the table. And just as we were speaking about before with dim sum there is a real art to it and there's a real history to it. And, you know, the the people that are making these dim sum haven't just learned it that afternoon. They've mm. spent a very long time perfecting their craft. And I think that that's really shown 
in a lot of the the dishes and a lot of the places that I've also experienced uh, Chinese food. But I really feel, Ching, that I think I'd like to go and have Chinese food with you one day because I always believe <laughs> that you need to go with someone who knows what they're ordering because I do find sometimes I just order the same things all the time. <laughs> That's okay. You've got your favorites. No one's judging you as long as you enjoy it. But after this, we're going to have to go and eat together. Absolutely. Yeah. I have an incredibly high threshold for chili. I know you've done a few demos I saw the other day I was looking online for is it chui chow oil oh chui chow chili oil yeah yes yes that, that's spicy that no, okay <laughs> but you know that I can literally drizzle that on everything that I eat I mean when, oh, I, when I go to Chinese restaurants I ask for more I'm like no not enough I need more because they always put it in tiny little ramekin sort of dishes yeah. and I'm like no just bring me the whole vat over <laughs> And you have to share it as well. Yeah, no, no, no. I always ask, make sure that everyone has their own individual ones. <laughs> That's good. You are, I mean, the older I get, the more I'm losing my chili, but you've got it. Oh, no, yeah. I'm there. I'm, I'm there. I'm doing you it for do. the two of us. <laughs> you also have the Lotus Walk. Can you explain to all of us what the difference is between a wok compared to a standard frying pan? Okay. Because a lot of people don't have woks and will usually do their stir fries in a, in a frying pan. So, um, I mean, you just, everyone needs to get a wok. And, and, and thanks for mentioning my lotus wok. The shape of it is the most important thing because a frying pan is flat and you're going to chase your food around. With a wok, you, you, it needs to have deep sides. Don't, don't be sold on a wok that has a flat base because that's just a frying pan masquerading as a wok you're still going to have to chase the food around in the pan. With a beautiful shaped wok, you've got um, a very small surface on the bottom, a very small flat surface and deep sides. And that curvature allows you to toss the food. So when you push the food forward, it comes back in a very uniform way. And the small base allows the huge concentration of heat in terms of um, the flames, in terms of the power, whether it's from gas or induction, you know, wood fire, that small area heats up and it goes up the sides. And that, that concentration is what is going to allow the searing of the food. So that high heat um, allows you to get that, that delicious um, you know, uh, char, just this light, ever so light charring of all your ingredients of whether it's, you know, uh, meat or fish or vegetables. And in particular, I'm going to use vegetables to, to describe it because um, you want, uh, you want crisp vegetables, you know, when you do a stir fry. And um, it's all about the combination of the heat, the oil, the timing of the ingredients and the timing of and the order of the ingredients that you put in the wok. And so um, this one wok tool will allow you to, to stir fry, in a sense, the French say saute. Um, it'll allow you to braise, it'll allow you to shallow fry, it'll allow you to deep fry, it'll allow you to steam, it'll allow you to smoke. Um, of course, try and get a wok lid as well, because that wok lid is going to allow you to smoke. And also, um, if you have a sort of like a, a metal um, steamer rack, which is very popular these days. OK, it's just basically a flat rack made of stainless steel in a circular round that fits into the wok and it's got lots of holes in it. So that allows you to put the water underneath to steam or allows you to put um, a, a little parcel of uh, rice, dry rice and dry tea to allow you to smoke whatever is on top and you put the lid on. So, you know, this is just the, the best invention to come out of China. And I think the Chinese may have stolen it from the Indians, you know, <laughs> uh, as well, because they have the Karachi. But, but hey, we'll, we, you know, we won't discuss that right now. We won't but... get political. <laughs> <laughs> My lotus wok, it's made of uh, nanosilica, sand particles blasted into the carbon steel. It's heavy gauge. And what it does is it's, it's natural, it doesn't give off any PFOE fumes, PFOA fumes, it's non-carcinogenic, and um, the food slips and slides. And why we call it the lotus wok, it's kind of like a water running off the lotus leaf because it's so 
uh, smooth. And, um, and so it's a new technology in terms of the material of the wok. And then the shape to me is really, really important. So um, definitely, definitely get one with, with deep sides. I'm so glad that I've had that whole explanation because I'm never ever cooking a stir fry again in a frying pan. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's going to stew. It won't be crisp. Yeah, I also find that when I when I do make sort of stir fry type dishes, it has more of a chance to to burn on a frying pan than it yes. would in a wok. Absolutely, it's it's a larger surface area, and you're having to look. You ha- you're having to gather all the yeah. all the ingredients together and to keep an eye on it so that you don't burn it. Whereas naturally, in a smaller base, everything falls to the center anyway, and so it's easier to keep your eye on Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And all the um, veggies, especially I use veggies to describe it, is because they all fall and come together uniformly back into the center. Um, and as you toss, so everything gets a little lick of, you know, the garlic, the ginger, the chili, the heat, the smoke. My stomach now is rumbling. <laughs> Ching, I always end my interviews with a few quick fire questions. My absolute favorite snack of all time is a packet of crisps. What is your favorite flavor of crisp and why? I think this is really hard. Um, I think it'd have to be sweet chili. Okay. Yeah. Like a, like a Walker's Sensation sweet chili, a kettle chip sweet chili. No, actually, it, well, it's not quite <laughs> sweet chili because can I just change it? <laughs> yes. I'll allow you um, one change. I think, um, no, it's, you know what? It's the, the Monster Munch chili. You know, the flaming okay. hot. It's the flaming okay. hot chili. Okay. <laughs> The reason why I'm laughing so much is not because I'm laughing at you. I'm actually laughing with you because my favorite flavor of crisp, as I'm sure everyone knows by now, is pickled onion monster munch. Oh, my God. Which are the best flavor (laughs) ever. But I always get told off that monster munch are just such a slightly ghetto crisp because they're just they get everywhere. Yeah. And the flavors like stick on your skin for days on end, but they are just <laughs> the best thing ever to grace this planet. Uh, they are, I actually have to say pickled onion. I forgot about pickled onion. I think those two <laughs> right up there, actually. <laughs> the pongyan, tangy are the best. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what is the craziest food you've ever eaten? So I've had in Hong Kong squid sperm sacks yeah oh wow they are funky you don't really (laughs) want to have any how how were they prepared they were really disgusting no I mean sorry they were gourmet I mean it's a gourmet Cantonese dish wow um with scrambled eggs and chives yeah. Oh my and thank gosh. God for the chives. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> I think you might win the medal on this one. So uh, very interesting. I didn't even know squid had sperm. <laughs> Nor did I. <laughs> well, that's one. And the other one is water cockroaches. Okay. So Ken and I were filming Exploring China uh, in 2012. We went to Canton, the biggest seafood market. And there there were these little black things like in water. And we're like, what are they? And um, the, the guy's like, oh, water cockroaches. Actually, they're really delicious. Let's cook with them. So we went into the kitchen and we cooked. Chef whipped them up. I'm not sure that I'd eat either of those things but I, I really admire the fact that you were very open-minded in both of those circumstances I had no choice the cameras were rolling and you, you know just what you've got to do what you've got to do, you gotta do it's your, but then but then that segment it was cut out anyway oh no, so. after all of that <laughs> it was not worth it what has been your most memorable meal you know what um there's two one having smoked wood pigeon cooked by two mission star chef in hong kong in the presidential suite of the intercontinental overlooking you know <laughs> in kowloon overlooking looking across at hong kong island um filming for um exploring china i think that was it and with ken hong fabulous um, i think that that's one but i think the other one you know that's not as 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 glam as that is just simply in Siji Foundation, it's a nunnery uh, in eastern Taiwan. Uh, you can go there and you can spend the day there. 
with the nuns and you can eat the most fabulous Buddhist uh, vegetarian food. Um, and you eat all together in absolute silence. Wow. And so, and, and there's a beautiful ritual of, you know, saying a little prayer when you eat. Um, and you're just eating so mindfully and in silence. And there is something so magical about 100 or so people eating together. Very yin and yang. <laughs> Very yin and yang. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of food. I actually quite like sometimes eating in silence. It gives you a newfound appreciation sometimes for what you're eating, especially if it's somewhere special. Yeah. Eat to live or live to eat? Gosh. Both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> Ching, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been incredibly inspiring, incredibly eye-opening. I've learned so much. I cannot wait until the restaurants are open again because I need to get a serious dose of a few dishes that you have been talking about. You can follow Ching on social media at Ching He Huang. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. You're, you're so easy to talk to. And you oh, have such a passion you. for food. I do. Thank you for listening and joining me this week. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend and another and maybe another. Don't forget to follow all the crazy sexy antics on Instagram at crazy sexy food. And please visit the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel where you will find the food show, how-to videos, interviews and everything in between. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.